Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. It seems that you know this kind of an issue is is troublesome because it contradicts so much of what people have been taught, and myself included. I was one of those people who was taught that faith is only in your heart and that actions are simply a byproduct of faith. And that made a lot of sense to me. And I was never in my life inclined to uh, imitate anyone, certainly not to become a Wahhabi or to join some group of people. But it was my attempt when I became a student and seeker of knowledge to discover the truth from the sources of the Quran and Sunnah. It was for that reason that I uh, <coughs> tried my best to learn the Arabic language and to find different scholars with whom I could study. And it was never my custom to take one scholar as my <coughs> as my sheikh and listen to him and uh, listen to no others. And I've never done that. And I believe that it's a very big problem we have in Islamic Ummah today, which is kind of hero worship, which we've put... Uh, following certain scholars, perhaps it, almost in an exaggeration, as equivalent to Islam. So I'm going to go back, I'm going to backtrack just a little bit to the book and just quickly read the statements of the Salaf, uh, first of all, concerning Iman. And of course, these are not the statements of Shaykh Hassan ibn Taymiyyah or any other person. Uh, from that late generation, but from the, the early generations and the scholars of the Sunnah. And first of all, uh, the Sahaba always had a different methodology than the scholastic methodology of scholars. They never went down and sat down and studied Iman like the theologians study it Iman is tasdiq and tasdiq is in the heart and and it's uh, established in the heart through watching to uh, uh, witnessing the ijaz uh, or the miraculous nature of the proofs of Islam etc 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 these long definitions and things were never their Iman but the Sahaba were fundamentally people of action Iman to them immediately was a change of their entire personality and their entire being. While the Sahaba themselves were all on different levels of Iman and knowledge and practice. They weren't all equivalent. And Ahl Sunnah Jama'ah, by Ijma'ah, by unanimous opinion, distinguished between the levels of the Sahaba, of the Khulafa Rashidin and the Ashra Mubashirin Bil Jannah. The different levels of, of knowledge and practice. And they were not all equal. But as the Hadith says, we used to learn Iman before we learned the Qur'an. And it increased us in Iman. This is Sahih Hadith found in Ibn Majah, number 61, from Jundab. And so the Sahaba increased their Iman by learning Iman, by practicing Iman. Iman to them was the important thing. It was the primary thing. 
the words of the Quran were only one aspect of increasing their iman. But Islam was their whole way of life. The Salaf Asala have started explaining Iman in detail only after controversies arise in the Ummah. Before the Murja'ah appeared, there was no reason for them to seek out the definitions of Iman since everybody knew what Iman was. If you would ask the Sahaba, for example, about Salat, which things in Salat are Rukin? Which things are Wajib? Which things are Mustahab? How many of them could answer those kind of questions? Actually none. Because those terminologies were invented later on when people started examining the reality of the Ahkam of Salat. When people started questioning which things of, of Salat can we abandon completely? Which things of Salat, if we don't do them, our Salat will be nullified completely? The Sahaba, their Salat was Pray the way you see me pray. And the same thing with the Iman. When different groups started challenging the definition of Iman, then it became necessary for the Imams and scholars of Islam to reply against them. And these have come down to us by Tawatah. There are so many numerous statements from the Sahaba and the Tabi'een the Imams of Islam that no one can doubt the definition it doesn't matter whether the scholars were from Hijaz or from Iraq or from Khorasan or from Egypt or from Morocco from Spain wherever they were at they agreed that Iman huwa qawlun wa amalun yuzidu wa yunqas that Iman are words and deeds increase and decrease. And the Shaykh, Shaykh Sabra Hawali, listed in great detail the statements of scholars regarding this fact. And I'm going to just try to briefly summarize the scholars who have narrated the Ijma concerning this subject in their books which are available to us. Number one, Amir al-Mu'mineen fil hadith Abu Abdullah Muhammad ibn Ismail al-Bukhari rahimahullah said, I met more than 1,000 of the scholars, the people of knowledge from Hijaz, Makkah, Medina, Kufa, al-Basra, Wasit, Baghdad, Sham, Egypt and I, and he, he mentions all of them uh, each level of the ulama and he said he found all of them over a period of 46 years from all of these different countries and he mentions all the countries in detail and he lists specifically from Hijaz the six years he spent in Hijaz and all the different scholars and the years he spent in Syria and all the different scholars and Egypt he doesn't just generalize but he mentions every single scholar in detail as was his habit and so I won't read but he mentions every single scholar which he meant met of the famous scholars of hadith and sunnah in every part of the world in great detail and then he said that he did not mention all of them but this was just his brief 
mention of those scholars after he lists dozens and dozens and dozens of different scholars. And he said all of them agreed that the deen, iman, was holun wa amal. وَمَا أُمِرُوا إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُوا اللَّهِ مُخْرِسِينَ لَهُ الدِّينِ وَنَفَاءُ يُقِيمُوا الصَّلَاةُ وَيُؤْفُوا زَكَاءُ وَذَلِكَ الدِّينُ الْقَيْمَةُ They were only commanded to worship Allah, devoting the deen entirely to them, hunafa' establishing salat and paying zakat, and that is the true faith. And he mentions uh, in detail their aqidah, and that they believe that Iman was qawlun wa'amal and that they did not make takfir of anybody who committed a sin but they said inna allaha la yalfiru an yushrika bihi wa yalfiru maduna dalika liman yasha secondly he, he mentions and this is Safra Hawali the two scholars the two Razis Abu Zara and Abu Hatim Razi from Ray which is by Tehran today, great famous scholars of Hadith. And Abu Hatim said, I asked my father and Abu Zarah, who is actually his uncle, what is the madhab of Ahl Sunnah concerning Asul al-Din, which means Aqidah? And what did the ulama in all the cities to which his father and his uncle traveled, what did they believe concerning that? And both of them answered, we found the ulama in all of the cities of Islam, all the Amsar or central cities of Islam, in Hijaz, Iraq, Syria, and Yemen, that their madhab was that Iman is qawlun wa amal yuzid wa yunkus, that it is word and deed increases and decreases. And then he mentions in detail their aqidah also concerning that ahl kabair are up to Allah subhanahu wa will, that we do not declare them kuffar, and he goes on to this the aqid of Ahl Sunnah wa Jama'ah. Uh, one of the famous students of Ishaq ibn Rahawai, of course, one of the famous scholars of Hadith, the Salaf, said that he dictated to him, that is, he wrote down from the dictation of Ishaq, that Iman. أن الإيمان قول وعمل يزيد وينقص لا شك إن ذلك كما وصفنا that إيمان is words and deeds increases and decreases there is no doubt that it is so as we have said and then he goes on once again to describe the details of the عقيدة of أهل السنة والجماعة أبو بيد القاسم بن سلام الإيمان in the book which he wrote concerning Iman, he said, هذه تسمية من كان يقول إن الإيمان قول وعمل يزيد وينقص This is the people, he, he, he lists the people who said that Iman are words and deeds increase and decrease. And then he mentions from Ahl Makkah all of the Sahaba and Tabi'in who mentioned this, Ahl Medina, all the scholars from Yemen, all the scholars from Egypt and Syria, and people who lived in the other cities. He mentions details of dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of the scholars of the Tabi'in and Salaf who made this statement. Number five, Imam al-Baghwi in his book Sharh al-Sunnah said the Sahaba and Tabi'in agreed 
and as well as the ulama of sunnah after them agree and al-amalu min al-iman the actions are part of iman the qawlihi subhanahu wa ta'ala innama al-mu'minun al-lazina idha dhukira allahu wajilat qulubuhum and then he goes on in detail number six Ibn Abdul Bar said ajma'a ahl al-fiqh wal-hadith ala inna al-iman qawlun wa'amal that the scholars of fiqh and hadith are in unanimous agreement that iman consists of actions, words and actions, and there is no action without intention. And that iman increases by obedience to Allah and it decreases by sinful behavior. And that and that the actions, all of all actions, or I mean, pardon me, all obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is part of iman. And then he mentions the, the the disagreement in this concerning Abu Hanifa and his uh, companions. But he said, other than Abu Hanifa and his companions, the other fuqaha from Ahlai and the Hadith al Athar from Hijaz in Iraq and Syria and Egypt, and including he he, he names them Malik ibn Anas, Alayth ibn Saad, Sufyan al-Thawri, al-Auzai, al-Shafi'i, Ahmed ibn Hanbal, Ishaq ibn Rahway, Abu Ubaid al-Qasim ibn Salam. Wudaud ibn Ali the Zahiri, Abu Jafar al-Basri, and the other scholars agree that iman is words as well as deeds, and he goes on in detail. Al-Imam al-Hafiz ibn Kathir stated concerning iman that when iman is used alone, that it is al-iman al-Shari or the Islamic Shari definition of iman. That it is. Belief, etiquad, and call words, and amal, and only that. And he said, this is what the majority of the imams uh, agree upon. Rather, Imam Shafi and Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal and Abu Ubaid and others of the scholars say that that is ijma, or that is the unanimous opinion that iman is words and deeds increases and decreases. Al-Hafid, al-Imam, Ibn Rajab al-Hanbali said the famous well-known mashhur statement of the Salaf and Ahl Hadith, the scholars of Hadith, is that Iman consists of words and deeds and intention, niyyah. And that all actions are included in the musamma al-Iman, in the term Iman. And then he says that Imam Shafi once again declared that that was the ijma' of the Sahaba and the Tabi'een. Ibn Jarir al-Tabari, of course the, the uh, great scholar of Tafsir, the Shaykh of the Mufassirin, said, وَسَوَابُ The right or correct belief, according to, to us, is the statement that Iman is words and deeds, increases and, de- and decreases. And this is the khabar and jamati min ashab Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa And this is what has been passed down to us from many of the Sahaba of the Prophet and upon this is the Ahl Deen Wal Fadl, the, the, the uh, scholars of the faith and uh, excellent uh, practices in Islam. And Imam Ahmed, of course, in the book of Iman, and his son Abdullah bin Ahmed in the Sunnah, 
uh, narrate from many different scholars uh, once again that the beliefs of Irja are sinful and what, what I was saying sinful they said al-Irja that is they criticize al-Irja and he mentions a whole half page of the names of the scholars from the Sahaba and the Tabi'een who uh, made that statement. And there are more scholars, perhaps it's not necessary to bring all of them. Uh, and he goes into detail of the scholars who mentioned the Ijma concerning this subject. And so it's a false statement to claim that this is something that was invented by Sheikh al-Istab ibn Taymiyyah or other scholars and that this aqidah was something which was invented at a later time and that is the saying of people who want to dissuade people from taking their aqidah from the Quran and Sunnah and in fact it's a kind of playing with words when they know very well that there were no such terminology in the time of the Sahaba such as such and such as a rukun and such and such as a wajib and such and such was uh, mustahab but all that terminology were used by the scholars to describe the reality of different actions which were uh, found in the Quran and in the Sunnah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam as far as the issue of people abandoning action and the abandoning action in totality is kufr and that this is ijma this is according to the sources which I already listed it goes back to the idea that iman is not a simple abstract thing but iman consists of different things it's murakkaba that it consists of belief and knowledge and works of the heart actions of the heart works of the lips speaking saying the shahada pain and works of the limbs and so if you understand the reality of iman as consisting of these different parts then you will see the necessity therefore that if you abandon totally one of those essential parts of Iman that Iman could no longer be there just as if you abandon one of the essential parts of any other Islamic action such as Salat or any other uh, of the Ahkam Sharia the problem is that people want to apply this to specific situations and you have to realize that the methodology of Ahl Sunnah is that the methodology of Ahl Sunnah is the most merciful and most just methodology and we do not attempt to apply these uh, understandings on specific individuals and we do not seek out individuals to declare which one has committed fisk and which one has committed kufr and attempt to destroy uh, the reputations uh, of people but we should follow the methodology of the Prophet and his Sahaba in justice <laughs> and mercy. We only judge specific individuals under very specific conditions. 
that have to be fulfilled. And truthfully, none of us are qualified to pass judgment on specific individuals, and we should leave that up to uh, the qualified uh, scholars, inshallah. And so this is a very important principle of Ahl-Sunnah, which is called Al-Hukm al Mu'ayyin, judging a specific uh, person and situation. But it's up to us in this kind of a subject to know the general conditions of Iman, the reality of Iman, its nature, and the Ahkam in general, so that we can benefit and we can convey it to other people. But to declare that different people have, are murtad or have left Islam is a very dangerous thing and it is not for for seekers of knowledge to get involved in that kind of activity. But that is an activity which is criti- criticized. It is a sinful activity. It's an activity which brings fitna and chaos and difficulty. People of Dawah, people who want to spread Islam, people who want to call others to Iman have to always look at the reaction to their words and actions and not use words and actions which will drive people away from Iman or away from Islam or away from listening to their da'wah but do words and actions which will invite people and give pe- be patient with people as the Prophet ﷺ was patient with the ignorant Bedouin people who were rough and rude in their treatment if any person came to this masjid and did the kinds of things in this masjid which the Bedouin did in the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ, the people would probably kill him and beat him and throw him out. And yet see what the Prophet ﷺ's beautiful conduct was towards the, the Arabi. And we should emulate the best of the conduct of the Prophet ﷺ and his companions and the Imams of Islam. Of course, the person who totally refuses to commit any action. The most noticeable action of that, of course, is Salat. And the Sahaba agreed that Salat is Kufr. And there was no disagreement among them until these groups at later dates came up and started controversies about these matters. But the Hukam of Islam is that the person who refuses to perform Salat and other deeds of Islam is requested to make tawbah and this is repeated to him and there is a, a step which they call which is establishing that a person has knows Islam understands the belief of Islam understands his or her duty towards Islam and yet openly completely rejects it and this has to be done correctly and that person has to be, da'wah has to be made to that person. And da'wah, of course, is to summon people towards Islam, towards Iman, in the best way, in the most efficient manner possible. But there is never a duty for all of us as Muslims to investigate the situation of different individuals. Or if we know the situation of particular individuals, it is not our duty to spread that knowledge about to other people. The only thing is that if you know of a particular individual, that that person is a kafir, even though he appears to be a Muslim, 
and that is not known to the community, is to do what was done by the uh, Sahaba and the Salaf of this Ummah, which is, if possible, not to pray at that person's funeral or follow them in Salat unless you are forced to do so. But it is not necessary for us to announce to everybody unless there is a maslaha or direct benefit to the Islamic community if they know that. And so this is a matter sometimes of choosing the lesser of two evils or the greater of two benefits. It's a matter of ijtihad. It's a matter of thinking about the reality of the situation and is it a benefit to spread the knowledge. So if we have knowledge about certain individual Muslims, is it a benefit if everyone else knows that particular action or deed or belief of that particular Muslim or will it have more of a harm than a benefit if this knowledge is spread. At least the least kind of action or the least kind of behavior which is owed to our Muslim brethren is to treat them as the Prophet ﷺ treated the leaders of Nifaq in Medina. The Munafiqeen in Medina of course were non-Muslims who did not believe in Islam, did not have any uh, aspect of Islam or Iman but who outwardly appeared to be Muslims and the leaders of it not only were they Kafirs and of course all Muslims agreed they were Kafirs but the leaders of the Nifaq tried to spread fitna tried to have the Prophet ﷺ killed tried to have the Muslims slaughtered made deals behind the backs of the Muslims with their, with their enemies, did everything they could to destroy Islam. And yet, the Prophet ﷺ treated them openly with respect, treated them as he treated other Muslims. He did not want to be accused by people of killing his own companions. So if the person who is, for example, neglecting his duty as a Muslim and we summon him to the faith and we explain to him that it's necessary as a Muslim for him or her to perform Salat, pay zakat, and the other actions of Islam or he will be considered outside of Islam by Ijma'ah. That person, inshallah, if he returns and he said, okay, I'm going to do my Salat, I'm going to pay my zakat, I'm going to be a Muslim, then we have to trust that person and believe him. Even if we have doubts about his or her sincerity, it's our husnadhan or believing the best, giving the benefit of the doubt. And so we have to assume that the person is being honest in their return to Islam. And there is no more or no less that we owe them than what the Prophet ﷺ did to the highest leaders of the Munafiqeen in his time who outwardly pretended to make Salat and do the other actions. And yet the Prophet ﷺ treated them the way that he treated them with patience and forbearance. But if the person refuses, and we're talking, of course, let's, you know, that we're in the Islamic society where there is perhaps a threat of execution. The person is refused and he has understood completely his duty towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he refuses. He says, I am not going to perform salat. I would rather that you killed me, chop my head, 
or whatever, execute me, then pray, then perform salah. The murji'ah, al-fuqaha, say that that person is a believer. That person has iman. Because iman is not connect, connected to outward actions. And if there was no saying of the Sahaba, no saying of the Tabi'een, no saying of the Imams of Islam concerning Iman being including actions, would common sense tell you that this person could still be a believer and yet is in an Islamic society where everything is encouraging Iman and is refusing and would prefer death than to actually perform Salat? Yet the Murji'ah say this person could be a true believer and that if he is refuses and is executed he still dies as a believer and I challenge anybody to defend this kind of a belief and to demonstrate in any rational way how this belief could be or demonstrate from the point of view of the Quran or the Sunnah of the Prophet how it could be that a person could prefer execution than the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and be a believer. There are of course special situations where people are not able to do their actions but these do not contradict the general principle. And so of course the famous thing would be the person who became a Muslim became had Iman said the Shahadatain believed in it but he's on his deathbed and didn't live long enough to actually do any action of Islam. Or the person who is mukrah, the person who's living, say, for example, in Stalinist Russia, and he's being spied upon in every place, and if he actually prayed or did any outward act of Islam, could be executed, for example. Those are extreme situations, but they are realities that actually happen. They are not simply theoretical. The Murjia claim that these exceptions prove that action is not a rukun or it is not an essential part of iman. That, for example, the dumb, the person who cannot speak, cannot say the shahadatain. Obviously, a person who cannot talk cannot say the shahadatain. So they say that proves that saying the shahadatain could not be a rukun. Now, does anybody claim that a person in Islam who is not able to do something, that that makes that, that thing not an essential practice? For example, Salat. Isn't Qiyam in Salat? Isn't standing up in Salat one of the Arkan or one of the essential parts of Salat? Of course. No doubt. And the Rukur and the Sajda, for example. But the person who is unable to perform Qiyam or unable to make Rukur or unable to make Sajda, that person is excused. Those exceptions do not violate the rule. But they are exceptions because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not require of any person what he or she is unable to perform. And so the paralyzed person lying in his bed makes salat even if he is only making it completely in his heart. He is acting in his heart. He is ordering his body to do actions but his body is not responding because of no ability on his or her part. All of this goes back to the misconception about Iman. The Iman is an abstract thing. That is one thing. That it cannot be uh, 
divided. That one person cannot have some iman and another person have more or less iman. That it cannot increase and decrease. Because if you believe, as the murajia believe, that iman is one abstract thing, it's obvious to everybody that actions are not. It's obvious that actions are different according to different people, according to the same person. Most of us in Ramadan have actions that we don't have in other parts of the year. Most of us feel, in fact, that our iman increases. And it becomes easy for us to pray long prayers and read the Qur'an. And unfortunately, because of the weakness of our iman, in other times of the year, we neglect to read the Qur'an as much. And we neglect to pray as much as we prayed in Ramadan. Most of us feel that if we look in ourselves, except for a few blessed individuals. But if you think that Iman is one thing, it cannot increase and decrease. It cannot be divided. One person cannot have more than the other person. We're all equal in Iman. And you see that people's actions are different. That that brother is praying all night. This other brother does his wajib and goes home and sleeps all night then actions could not part, be part of Iman, could they? It would be impossible. Because actions obviously vary from one person to another. The outward things are different. And so, the reason they reject that actions could be part of Iman, or that actions are an essential part of Iman, is that they misunderstand Iman as a whole. And they think of Iman as an abstract entity outside of the individual. But the reality is that Iman exists only in individual examples. Also, because of this concept, they have several shubahat that have to be answered or misunderstandings or misconceptions. And so the Sheikh goes into detail about these misconceptions and I'll just briefly mention a few of them one their belief that kufr is simply takdeeb a takdeeb al-mujarrid it's simply denial that is what kufr is do you say there is one god one ilah worthy of worship no that is what they say kufr is. Do you say that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah? No. That is their definition of kufr. But the kufr, if you look in the verses of the Quran and the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ concerning kufr or disbelief, you will see many different types of kufr. There's kufr of takdeeb or denial. Kufr al-istihza, that is ridicule, the person who ridicules the ayat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the revelations of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or the person who ridicules the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu or any aspect of the sunnah. Mustahzi, the sunnah, is a kafir, outside of Islam. So the person who says, ah, those people who grow beards, that is ridiculous, that is stupid. Or those people who, who raise their the hemlines up above their ankles, they are fools, etc., etc., and that, of course, is with knowledge that this is part of the sunnah. I should include that that is when they understand that this is the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, and yet they still ridicule it. 
كفر الإباء والامتناع والعراق refusal and rejection refusal to pray refusal to pay zakat and those people of course are outside of Islam as the Sahaba themselves mentioned kufr shak as is mentioned in the Quran and also in the Hadith having doubt about the truth of any aspect of Islam or the Quran or the Sunnah of the Prophet that has been authenticated all of these are aspects of kufr and are used that way and what <laughs> distinguishes Ahl Sunnah wa Jama'ah because everybody claims to be Ahl Sunnah wa Jama'ah the Murja Fuqaha claim to be Ahl Sunnah wa Jama'ah the Murja Al-Mutakalimun claim to be Ahl Sunnah wa Jama'ah but what distinguishes the reality of Ahl Sunnah wa Jama'ah from the other the Ahl Sunnah wa Jama'ah takes these words and believes them and acts upon them while all the other ones say no this contradicts some principle of our madhab so we have to make ta'wil and we have to understand these in another way and all of these come because they misunderstand the essential aspect of the nature of the human being that outward actions are only the visible part of our inward actions and the inward actions are only the result of our intention and the intention is only the result of our belief and the belief is the result of our thinking there is no way to separate outward actions from inward actions and beliefs any more than you can claim that only the visible part of the boat is the reality and it is not connected to the part of the boat that is below the water line that is invisible to you so in order to have kufr according to the murji'ah in order for your the, you have kufr outwardly kufr of your limbs you have to have kufr first of all in your heart and they can, you cannot prove the kufr in your heart and so you could do any action of kufr spit on the Quran wear the cross all the other actions of kufr bow down to the idol but you could still possibly have iman in your heart because they deny and do not understand the essential connection between the outward and the inward and that is something that is impossible to anybody who understands human nature human psychology or the fitrah on which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created us so without doubt according to the Sahaba and the Tabi'een and the Ulama the person who bows down to the idol willingly without being forced to do so is committing an action of kufr and it's impossible that you could be living in safety and security in a Muslim country and make a Buddha and bow down to it and yet you have Iman in your heart without being forced to do so or some other extenuating circumstance or it's impossible that you could be living in peace in an Islamic place and you could take the Quran and spit on it and step on it and insult it on purpose without being forced to do so and yet you have Iman in your heart it is not possible to disconnect the outward action from the inward action also 
what they call al-jahid the person who is stubbornly refusing action who is a kafir by ijma the understanding of the jahid al-jahud according to the salaf is refusing to do your duty knowing your duty but refusing to do it and the best clearest example to that in the time of the Sahaba was the people who refused to pay zakat did the Sahaba ask them of course we know the Sahaba were confused about the issue in the beginning but all the Sahaba agreed about the issue and followed Abu Bakr in it but did they ask the people who refused to pay zakat do you believe in the obligation of paying zakat and you're simply refusing or do you believe or do you deny also the refute and refuse you know deny that it is an obligation of course they did not ask them the Sahaba did not imagine that the people could believe that Allah commanded them to pay zakat and yet refuse to do so they knew that those people were aware that Allah had commanded them to pay zakat the Sahaba understood that they were jahideen, that they were rejecting and refusing zakat, not because they were ignorant of the fact that it was obligatory, or believed in it, but simply did not want to do it, but they understood implicitly that they, be- they believed and knew that zakat was obligatory upon them, but they refused. Let me say that the right way. I'm kind of... The Sahaba understood and it is obvious to any logical person that they knew that zakat was obligatory but they rejected it in their hearts and so they did not pay it it did not occur to the sahaba it did not occur to any logical person that they knew of their obligation believed that it was true and yet did it and so Abu Bakr of course convinced the sahaba about that and they all unanimously agreed and they fought and kill the people who refuse to pay zakat. And in fact, the Sahaba said, Lo ata'una Abu Bakr kafarna. If we had, if Abu Bakr had obeyed us, we would have become kuffar. That is, if Abu Bakr had listened to our opinion not to fight them, then we would have left Islam. That was how this is found in the Musannaf of uh, Ibn Abi Shaybah. This is showing how serious the Sahaba themselves felt about actions of kufr. They did not ask, are you simply refusing to pay zakat but you still believe in it? They would not. And the Sahaba, of course, were merciful towards the believers and severe against the unbelievers. And so their severity came because they knew that a person who knew of their obligation and yet refused to do it must be a kafir and so they were severe against the unbelievers if they had thought those people could be believers that they could possibly believe in their hearts and yet refuse to do the action they would not have taken the drastic steps which they took so inshallah I hope without going into any more of these details and without discussing individuals 
and the possibility of individuals making mistakes in a sincere way in this subject that we can understand the reality of Iman and that the reality of Iman is due to the reality of the human being just like the human being from the time it's born till the time he dies cannot cease thinking wanting and doing so can Iman not cease to be at any time your thoughts your will and desire and your actions and it's Understand it in any other way is to contradict the text, the literal meaning of the Quran, and the Sunnah, the Sahaba, the Ijma, unanimous opinion of the scholars, and to contradict human reason, and to take us from what is rational and practical to what is simply words. And that is, after all, the meaning of kalam is simply words which have no benefit to the Muslim Ummah and yet produce a lot of harm to the Muslim Ummah. But what could be of any benefit to telling people that your actions do not increase or decrease your faith? But do we really want an Islamic Ummah? We claim we want to revive the Ummah. We claim we want an Islamic state. We would like to live in a country where the laws are the laws of Islam and the practices are the practices of Islam. Do we want that Islamic State to be based on the concept that whatever you do, your Iman is fine? Do we want to live in that place? Inshallah, I hope that the answer is no. And I hope, Inshallah, that I've been able to clarify this issue. And I apologize to anyone if I've confused them more. It is my intention, of course, to increase people's understanding and my own. And uh, Inshallah, I recommend to people to study this subject further. Uh, on their own, inshallah, and Jazakum Allahu Khairan. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Jazakum <coughs> An innovation by Shaykh Islam ibn Taymiyyah and uh, Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab, but on the contrary, it is the belief of the Prophet and the Sahaba uh, and those generations and all the scholars of the Hadith and Aqeelah who came throughout the generations and only, as the Shaykh has mentioned in previous lectures, due to certain political circumstances uh, did this belief change in the Muslim world. The Shaykhs also. Uh, mentioned that the principle in Islam is uh, very merciful and that we do not actually rush to make a feel of anybody in Islam and not only go out searching for people and uh, testing them or taking any of these methods on the contrary uh, one makes excuses for us brothers but there are certain actions in Islam which are, if one leaves them in a total sense this can lead to kufr and uh, he did mention some of these actions which the Sahaba agreed upon, such as prayer, with they have absolute ijma on this, that you know, he's praying in his totality. is a kafir. The, of course, Shaykh was not referring to someone who just leaves one or two prayers, although some Sahaba might be of that opinion. But in, as far as the unanimity is agreed, is a, uh, the unanimity of the Sahaba is that someone who leaves a prayer in his totality is a kafir. And thus, one should not 
one book among us will not rush to make judgment upon anyone because of these issues. <coughs> you also mentioned that kufr is not simply kufr of takdeeb or kufr of belying, but there are many other forms of kufr as well, such as uh, scorning any aspect of the deen of Islam uh, after having knowledge of the aspect being from Islam. Also, uh, the kufr of withholding from certain Islamic actions, such as not paying zakah and salah. And also the kufr of da'at, which are some of the actions of kufr the shaykh mentioned, which the ulama again are agreed upon. So it's not simply the kufr of belying and saying, I don't believe in such and such, which many people today think is the only type of kufr. This is, uh, inshallah, a very brief, very, very brief summary. Inshallah, we'll go on to the questions now. Alhamdulillah, we do have some very good questions. Uh, the question is saying, this is a question not to stir up controversy, but to clarify issues which continue to confuse me. Do we need to check the heart of the one who wears a cross and calls himself a Muslim, even though he has no excuse to wear a cross? <coughs> That's one question. Does the action of wearing a cross constitute kufr? Kufr al-Akbar, meaning kufr which takes, one's out, takes one out of Islam. If yes, then in that case, is the ruler who legislates with other than the Sharia a disbeliever on account of his action alone, since he has no excuse of threat, etc., and that he probably controls the army and the people are utterly frightened of him? Of course, uh, if you took the latter approach, that would be the approach of the Khawarij, that all actions, if you, you know, any action, if you abandon it, you would be a kafir. And that is not the position of Ahl-Sunnah. Ahl-Sunnah do not declare a person to be a kafir because they commit particular sins. And so, wearing a cross in a Muslim country where there is no force or threat or anything like that is a clear action of kufr. It's an impossibility that a Muslim of intelligence, in other words, not a mentally retarded person or a child or an ignorant person could put on a cross and walk around the Kaaba uh, in Mecca and be a, a believer. That's a, an impossibility according to reason and according to the revelation. As far as ruling by other than the Sharia, knowing that the Sharia it commands us to rule by it, that is an action which the ulama consider the lesser kufr, which is, we call it kufr, but the person who does so is still within the ummah, but is a major sinner, and is therefore a fasik. But it's called kufr, and there's a lesser kufr, just as there's a lesser shirk, to show you the terrible level that that sin brings you to when you commit it. But if we, the ruler who does not rule by Islam is similar to all of us. When we disobey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he's disobeying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. For example, he decides to uh, allow riba. And we disobey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by deciding to use riba. And we don't declare that the person who practices riba is a kafir. But the ruler is in a more important position because the ruler's duty in Islam is to protect and spread Islam. 
And so his action is more serious than the normal Muslim's action. But it is still considered to be the lesser or minor kufr. Inshallah, I hope that's as clear as you know I can make it, inshallah. Uh, most of the questions are upon this similar subject. However, they do come from different angles, so inshallah, hopefully this way not going to clarify some of these issues, inshallah. Uh, the question is asking, as you said, Iman is belief, words and actions. Perhaps it means uh, belief in the heart and words mm-hmm. and actions. Mm-hmm. However, can you explain the hadith of the companion, who was not a companion anyway, can you explain the hadith of the person who committed so many sins during his life and therefore asked his sons to burn his body once he died and spread his ashes in the sea and Allah forgave him even though he didn't do any good deeds or actions as this is one of the hadiths Al-Albani gave as proof to support his opinion that Iman is only belief in the heart in his take of Kufr Kufran can you please explain the hadith? yeah well in fact this hadith is Proof that making ijtihad in aqidah does not cons- does not make you if you have an ijtihad in aqidah and make a mistake it does not put you outside of of the ummah because this person uh, in this story made ijtihad regarding Allah Taala's attributes of course clearly one of the asul al-din one of the parts of aqidah and he decided that Yes, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, he believed in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and yet he believed that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not have the power to resurrect him if his, you know, body were burnt and scattered. He did not understand all of Allah's attributes and yet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgave him because of the intention he had when he was asked and he said it was because of his fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala I remember correctly the, the text of this hadith and so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgave him because of his action his fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in his heart and that action caused him to make this uh, to make his will that this thing be done his fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was iman and of course fear is one of the actions of the heart and his action of commanding this deed, even though it was wrong, was the action out of his iman. But his iman was mistaken in some aspects because he was unaware of some of Allah's attributes. And so that is an extreme example of ijtihad in matters of aqidah and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgives mistakes in aqidah just like he forgives mistakes in action. There's a, another question. If someone takes out the mitty of the hijab or bed, what's that? If someone jokes with the hijab or bed, oh, and he does not know that this ridiculous statement he made is haram or kufr, mm. does this make him a kafir? No, exactly right. That a person may do something out of ignorance, and he is unaware that this is the sunnah of the Prophet or somebody has told him that this is not sahih or that this is uh, not part of Islam, and so. The person who is ignorant of those things, uh, inshallah, is forgiven by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for that statement. But the person who knows and is aware of the sunnah of the Prophet and makes fun of it, uh, ridicules it, and does not make tawbah, uh, that person, of course, is a kafir. 
okay, another good question. What does abandoning the obligation mean? Example, salah. Is it someone who doesn't pray at all or prays two to three times a day? The person who abandons salah. Of course, somebody might be lazy. And they skip the salah. What happens to the mu'min whose iman is so weak, he is lazy and he lets the time go? <coughs> decides to sleep in. And he could wake up, but he decides to sleep in. When he wakes up, he feels very guilty. He makes tawbah to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If he goes to some scholars, they will tell him to make qadha of that salah. And Allah knows best that the only qadha is, of course, tawbah or repentance from this action of kufr. But if that person persists and refuses to make salah and is commanded to make salah and his da'wah is made to him and he still refuses, this is clearly kufr and is impossible to imagine in cer- certain circumstances like that 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 person could have iman and yet absolutely refuse under all circumstances to make salah. But of course, if any of us neglect our obligations such as salah, we should immediately make tawbah to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and seek his forgiveness. Another good question. When Abu Bakr fought those who refused to pay zakah, was this because they believed them to be kuffar or because this was the hudud or the had of refusing to pay zakah? Please provide evidence. Mm-hmm. Of course, I think we just discussed that subject and I think the matter is very clear from what the Sahaba themselves said. If we had, if Abu Bakr had not fought them, then we have, would have been committing kufr in so doing so. In so, in so doing. The, the Sahaba themselves felt this was kufr. And they called this, and of course all Muslims know this as, as murtadin, as people of ridda, or people who have abandoned Islam. And this is an ijma' of the Sahaba and the Tabi'een that those people who were mentioned in this story were Murtadin, and anybody who questions that after so has done so in error. And in fact, there's no other way of understanding it. Okay. Okay. This question is asking, yesterday you mentioned some actions that if a person did them would take them out of the fall of Islam without finding out a person's intention such as spitting on the Quran how can we know or what are the principles of knowing whether an action is one of these okay uh, if the question if I understand the question it's how do we know whether an action is an action of kohor yeah I mean isn't it clear of the different types of kohor which we just mentioned uh uh, which Shaykh Sabrathwali mentioned which are all mentioned in the Quran or in the Hadith and istiza or ridicule is one of them and and doubt and refusal and rejection all those things are aspects of kufr and so any action which demonstrates that is an action of kufr unless there is some kind of mitigating excuse such as being forced so saying with the mouth like Yasser and Sumayyah died rather than denounce Islam. But Ammar, under torture, said words of kufr. And yet the Prophet said, yes, his heart was full of iman. He only did so because of that force. But 
saying words of ridicule of Islam or words of check or doubt or words of rejection or actions of ridicule or actions of rejection all those things without mitigating circumstances are actions of kufr what makes it clearly kufr is when there is no reasonable way that those actions or words could be said or done while there was some hidden iman that is when there is no force or there is no environment of oppression which prevents people from doing things so the scholars for example distinguish between people who do not pray in an environment like England from people who do not pray in an environment like Mecca for example and they grant the excuse of ignorance to those people because of the environment around them which prevents them from prayer in Islam they still must pray but the ulama do not declare that we must go and execute those people because of all the kufr and fisk that is around them. And so these are reasonable things. And so any action which cannot be done by somebody in a reasonable way and still have iman, that is one of the actions of kufr. Just like an action of iman is an, an action of iman, an action of kufr is an action, it, it, it is related to the kufr within. Okay, this person is once again asking, since Iman is on the tongue and on the, li and, and on the limbs as well as within the heart, uh, would it not be considered irja that we do not make takfir of particular rulers? And once again, in Ahl Sunnah, you may make takfir of rulers when they do openly acts of kufr akbar or make clear statements with knowledge of kufr akbar and that I, I, I don't want to get into the details of that because it's a very uh, difficult situation for the Muslim Ummah but kufr asghar is not included in that and so simply ruling by un-Islamic laws which is what any corrupt judge does or any corrupt ruler does from time to time when they're doing un-Islamic uh, administration of the country those are considered kufr asghar not kufr akbar and so that is not considered irjat but of course if the ruler were openly to reject Islam by action or word uh, that would be considered kufr akbar and that has to be in public and I think most of the rulers are too smart uh, to do those kind of things uh, the whole point brothers this subject we're individual Muslims living here in England or America wherever we're at what is in our hands to do about those kind of situations truthfully do we want to create civil war and bloodshed among the Muslims do we want the Muslims killing each other in the streets do we want the whole Muslim world to be like what happened in Algeria for example or what happened in Afghanistan is that what we really want for the Muslim Ummah? Of course, inshallah, we do not want that. And we're here, if, if, if it were in my hands to remove the rulers and establish Islam, I would, of course, do it, and so would any of you. But it's something that, inshallah, 
Muslims can work together to gradually implement in our lifetimes or inshallah in the lifetimes of our children that we can return society towards Islam. But the fact is that the rulers are only a symptom of the problem. They're not the problem themselves. But the rulers are ourselves. They are people like us from among our ummah. The rulers are our parents and our brothers and sisters and uncles and aunts. They have the same beliefs and the same practices as the Muslims around them. They aren't certain kind of devils who Allah SWT has raised up from hellfire to punish the Muslims. But they are simply an example of ourselves. If we can change ourselves, we can change the way the Muslim countries are ruled and not other way around. I wish, inshallah, that it was such a thing that, you know, it were easily solved. But the people who want civil war, the people who want to blow up places and kill people, are people who love bloodshed. And bloodshed in Islam is one of the kind of last resort tools. And sometimes innocent blood is shed. But the Muslims should hate that and detest it and avoid it at all costs, inshallah. So let us be patient. Let us be steadfast. Let us work together for the good of the Ummah, educating the people, educating the rulers themselves who are just as ignorant as the other people. And inshallah, you know, educate ourselves. And, and inshallah, Allah wa ta'ala will, will reward us for these efforts. Inshallah, bin Okay. Okay, um, this question has a short introduction. What would be your advice to a husband who does not perform salat but only go to Jumaat? There are the difficulties, these are the difficulties that some wives face in this country. But the fast, but they fast in Ramadan, pay zakah, but only he does not want to pray. Well, once again, this is of course a difficult, specific situation. And you would have to know the people and their situation. But if the husband is being lazy and neglecting some of the salat, of course the wife must uh, encourage him to perform the salat. And if he refuses continually, she must get other people of the Islamic community, such as the imams and knowledgeable people, or relatives and other people to put pressure on him. And if he refuses and continues in this way, then of course there's not a possibility that marriage can continue. And so she should begin her idda and not have sexual intercourse with him and at the end of the idda, inshallah, separated. And of course the wife would have the custody of the children. The custody of children in Islam would not go to this husband uh, no matter what their age is or sex is because of, of these conditions. And Allah knows best. But this has to be applied with knowledge of the specific situation and counseling of the husband, especially in this environment in England. Like I said, the scholars apply things differently in such situations here than they would do if it were taking place in Mecca or another uh, Islamic uh, environment, inshallah. This next question, uh, I think there's a slight misunderstanding here. If a member of our family is not a practicing Muslim, or as you mentioned, only claims that he or she is a Muslim, what happens when he or she dies as a believer with no actions? Can we go to their funerals? Once again, in my own family, I have people like this. You know, I mean, this is probably most families have individuals uh, like that. 
uh, if we're observing the day-to-day -day activities of people and we are fully aware that they are not Muslims except by name, then, of course, uh, we do not go to their funeral and pray behind them and other such things. And we can do so in a way which is not going to create chaos among people who are not aware of the situation. You can make any excuse or be late or whatever and not create a uh, situation. However, if it's one of your relatives and you think about them, these things, but you are not in the position of observing them day to day. You don't know when they died, for example, what they did that day or the hour of their death or what tawbah they may have made. So, inshallah, you trust, inshallah, they are Muslims and they are making tawbah and such things. But this only applies, and this is the best of my knowledge of the subject, and anything else beyond that, you'd have to ask somebody uh, more qualified than me. But this only applies when you are fully aware of the day-to-day -day situation of people up until the moment of their death. And otherwise, as far as uh, the limit of my knowledge is that it's husn of done or assuming the best, giving them the benefit of the doubt. <clears throat> in a book by Shaykh uh, al he says that in here are matters that every Muslim should know and understand. This book deals with issues of Iman and Kufr. So people use this book to make the fear upon people by saying that we understand, issues of, we understand these issues of Iman and Kufr, so therefore we are qualified to make the fear. What is the correct position and who is qualified to make the fear? Please provide evidence. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, what uh, Shaykh Safar said in the book about our attitude towards people uh, th is the attitude of the Sahaba and Tabi'een is that we treat Muslims like the Prophet, you know, Muslims who lack knowledge need to be taught. That none of the Salaf uh, called people kuffar because of errors they made in understanding Islam or lack of knowledge they may have had in certain aspects of Islam. But we leave that up to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And uh, we do not seek to make that fear of people, but this is the action of people of ignorance. And unfortunately, sometimes books are translated, and if the scholar himself was aware of how it would be misused, he would have included that kind of information in the book. But since he could not possibly be aware of the situation, he was not able to do so. And so if they themselves asked Sheikh Ibn Uthaymeen about these issues, he would, he would uh, criticize them most strongly. And so if they're going to base what they do on his book, they should ask him about uh, this issue. And I know very well what he would say about that uh, myself. And I think that you will have seen clearly uh, from what we have discussed on the subject the importance of Muslims being patient with each other and merciful towards each other and just with each other. And as we said, part of Iman is loving for your brother what you love for yourself. And if I love my brother who's mistaken or in error or practicing bid'ah, then I should love to guide him. And I know from myself in the past when I was mistaken or in error in certain issues, there were brothers who, 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 who used the wrong methodology on me and I didn't listen to them. But when other brothers came to me and explained it in a nice, calm, and merciful way, it had an effect on me. And that was for myself personally. And I think 
all of you would agree that that's the way you like to be talked to. And that's the, li- the way you like to be reasoned with. And so that's the way you should do with your brother. You should love to treat your brother the way you would love to be treated by others, inshallah. And if we do that, I think there there's no problem with this matter. So I'm going to call the last question before closing this session for Dua Prayer. <coughs> it's an interesting question because it uh, shows a misunderstanding, actually. A very important issue which inshallah uh, you clarify you said that is, it is obligatory to have a beard for worship so is it an act of kufr shaving the beard of course we already stated that the khawarij believe that any person committing certain sins is a kafir the murja believe that no matter what sins you commit you still have Iman, you're still a believer. But the correct position, the correct position of al Sunnah Jama'ah and the Sahaba and the Tabi'een and the Imams is that there are certain clear actions of Kufr. But other actions make one a sinner, a fasir, not a kafir. And obviously, shaving the beard was, for, was prohibited by the Prophet ﷺ. You can read it in Sahih Bukhari and other books. And in Arabic language, the imperative, the amr, implies obligation, as it does in English and every other language. You know very well that when, when you are commanded by your superior, that he is not making a request. He is ordering you. And the Prophet ﷺ, when he commanded us, it was an order, unless there's outside proof. In any case, no, no legitimate scholar of sunnah would declare that it's kufr to shave your beard or to wear your trousers below the ankles or to do other sins or a woman not wearing hijab is a kafir or such things but those are those people are fasiq they are sinners in Islam not kafirs and so they need to be da'wah needs to be made to them and they need to be guided in a patient way and told the difference between halal and haram and inshallah uh, uh, inshallah will guide them and all of us inshallah I think perhaps there's a slight confusion regarding the grade of actions. For example, I did mention that the and the Sheikh did mention rather that prayer is something which the Sahaba agreed upon as taking one out of Islam. Well, not all action is equivalent to prayer, of course. And zakah, for example, is not an action in that category. Well, if that if that were the case, we'd all be kafirs. There wouldn't be a Muslim on the face of the earth if committing a sin made you a kafir. But we would all be included in that. Allah knows best. There may be some exception to that. Um, somebody asking, will these, uh, will the lectures be available in writing or on the internet? Well, <laughs> or as a book? Inshallah, You know, it will be available as tapes. <laughs> oh no, that's too bad because. <laughs> well, <laughs> anyway, Inshallah, if. Uh, of course, a lot of these lessons I took directly from the book, and there were several different things which are from my own research, which will be made available, inshallah, in written form uh, soon, inshallah, bidnillah. But my own style lacks the, you know, the perfection of some of the other writers, and it needs a little bit of editing, a little bit of work. But uh, uh, as far as the book of Darat al-Irja, it would be a nice thing if, if the book were translated into English, and perhaps that will be done in the future, but I don't have knowledge that anybody is... It's working on that at the time. Uh, I think this is a very enlightening and essential lecture we've had today. 
and inshallah look forward to seeing you once again at 2.30 inshallah for the, for the penultimate lecture which is typically or rather the ultimate lecture.